There have been news reports recently about what will happen to the Queen if Britain plunges into post-Brexit anarchy and rioting. The Times reported on the 3rd of February that civil servants had revived old plans from the Cold War about how to scoot Her Majesty to safety if nuclear war had threatened. However, the actual plans were not revealed in the article, and that's how it was back in the Cold War. The plans for keeping the royal family safe were never made public. So did that mean that nuclear nerds all just said, oh well then, shrugged and went back to work? No way. (laughs) It meant loads of rumours sprang up about how the Queen would be spirited to safety in advance of nuclear attack. In this episode, we'll look at those rumours and see which are most plausible. And while the precise escape plan may have been kept secret, one thing was made public recently about the Queen and nuclear war, and that was the content of the speech she'd have to make to the country in the days, or maybe even just the hours, before nuclear war. I'm Julie McDevil, and this is The Atomic Hobo. Britain's national anthem is just so dull and plodding, isn't it? Surely France and um, probably Russia have claim to the coolest ones. Now let's look at the role of the Queen in the whole topic of war, morale and evacuation from danger. During the last war... The royal family stayed in Britain. The king and the queen mother stayed in Buckingham Palace. And uh, as we all know, it's now become famous. After Buckingham Palace was damaged in the Blitz, the queen mother said she felt able to look the East End in the face. Her two daughters, the two little princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret, Elizabeth, of course, now Queen Elizabeth, spent most of the war out in Windsor Castle. So they were out of London, away from the Blitz, but certainly no one could accuse them of of running away. It would have been perfectly acceptable, of course, to send the little princesses away. Plenty of children were evacuated, not just to the British countryside, but to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, for example. Nonetheless, um, probably in the interests of morale, I can imagine (laughs) Churchill laying down the law on this, the royal family stayed put And in October 1940, Princess Elizabeth, who was only 14, broadcast a message to all the little evacuees who'd been sent abroad via the radio programme Children's Hour. And that was a message of hope and a message urging them to be brave. Here's an extract. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you. As we know from experience, what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy. And at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people 
who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have traveled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States of America. So, that was the Queen during the last war. But what if there'd been another war? A nuclear war? What then? Well, there'd have been little point going to Windsor Castle. There's no safety to be found in Windsor, because nuclear war erases the idea of safety, unless you manage to get hundreds, preferably thousands of miles away. That's because of fallout, of course, which drifts on the wind. London's fallout would have no problem descending on nice leafy Berkshire. According to Google Maps, Windsor Castle is just an hour away from London. So, no luck there, Your Majesty. You'd have to scoot a lot further than that in a nuclear war. So, what would she do? It all depends on how much warning she had. If it's a bolt-from-the-blue attack, a complete surprise attack, then she'd get four minutes warning, just like everyone else in Britain. And you can't do much in four minutes. If she was at home in Buckingham Palace during those final four minutes, then she could maybe have time to duck into the rumoured secret tunnels which connect the palace to various strategic points in central London. There'd be no time to do anything other than enter these rumoured tunnels, of course. The idea of these tunnels is to scoot the Queen to safety, if they exist. But there'd be no time to get to safety, no time to connect up with a, an underground train line, no time to scoot along the train line out of the city, no time to head westward to Bristol, then catch a flight onwards to Canada. No time for any of that. You've only got four minutes before the bomb drops. So there'd be time simply to get into the tunnel and supposed safety if the tunnels are deep enough. But of course, once you're in the tunnel your major problem becomes getting out of the tunnel. As we see in the brilliant nuclear war film Threads, the politicians in Sheffield all manage to get to their bunker in plenty of time. They've had time to pack their little bags, arrange their desks. The leader of the council even had time to remember to bring a nice framed picture of his wife. But their problem, after the bomb drops, is how do you get out of the bunker when the town hall has collapsed on top of it. So we can assume that any tunnels or secret passageways under Buckingham Palace are going to have their entrances jammed or completely smothered in rubble and debris. Getting into the tunnel, fine. Getting out of it, not so easy. But if she had more than four minutes' notice, then the rumours go that these tunnels could have easily connected her to a train station from where she'd be taken to Bristol and then out of the country on a flight to Canada. Now, I say these tunnels are secret. There are tunnels under central London. They've been built mainly during the Second World War and been extended and maintained after the Second World War. So there is indeed a massive network of tunnels beneath London. Whether they're for a secret nuclear purpose, we don't know. They are... Officially, at least, for the post office. They are for maintenance of the tube, etc. Some of them were connected to deep shelters for the Second World War. So there's a whole big labyrinth underneath London 
But whether it would be any use in a nuclear war, whether that was the intent at any point, and whether the Queen has any connection to them, we simply don't know. However, they are there. Duncan Campbell explored them in a very entertaining and darkly humorous article for the New Statesman in December 1980, entitled Christmas Party for the Moles. He says there are 12 miles of tunnels, but he entered them on a tip-off by lifting a manhole cover on a traffic island on Bethnal Green Road. It was that simple. Someone told him where to go, what to look for, lifted the cover and he's in. He took his bike down there and he just explored one evening in what he called a uniquely quiet and highly exclusive subway. He said there was no one about and the air was pleasantly warm. He said as he cycled through these tunnels, he passed, quote, dense jungles of cable and noisy ventilator fans. So those tunnels are there, but as I say, whether they would be any use in a nuclear war or whether they ever had that purpose, we simply don't know. But I do recommend you check out Duncan Campbell's article. It's on his website, which is duncancampbell.org. And of course, the idea of having secret tunnels connecting you to secret train stations to get your top brass out of the city isn't so incredible. It's long been rumoured that Moscow has a secret metro system nicknamed Metro 2, which supposedly mirrors the ordinary metro. And the idea of Metro 2 is to get the Soviet leaders out of Moscow and to the Nikovo airport. So if Moscow can do that, why wouldn't we have the same in London? Probably because the Soviet Union were able to be far more secretive in their building projects. Perhaps if you were building a secret underground in London, you'd have a few people snooping around saying, what's going on here? So that is at least one of the theories of what was happened to the Queen or what plans had been made for the Queen in nuclear war. Apparently there's a whole labyrinth of tunnels beneath London Some of them may or may not connect to Buckingham Palace and those tunnels may or may not link her up with uh, special trains which could zoom her out of there and onwards to safety. It's a rumour, it's an interesting one. It's certainly plausible, there are tunnels. Why not burrow a few extra which leads to, for example, Buckingham Palace or Westminster or Downing Street? It's not the most impossible thing. So that's one of the theories at least. Another one which dates from earlier in the Cold War, from the 50s, is that the Queen would be taken out of London by aeroplane. Now, where would you land your aeroplane? Well, again, the rumour goes that the MAL would be used to land a plane. There are plenty of arguments against that, mainly the MAL is always absolutely jam-packed and crowded, and perhaps in the run-up to a war it would be even more crowded with protesters. So other people favour the Broadwalk in Regent's Park, I've sauntered along there, I'm sure sure many of us have, and you can see how a plane could land there. But those who favour these theories tend to prefer the Broadwalk in Kensington Gardens. The book uh, Beneath the City Streets certainly favours that argument, and the reason for favouring the Broadwalk in Kensington Gardens over the Broadwalk in Regent's Park is that in 1954, the trees which line Kensington Gardens Broadwalk were chopped down. The official reason for this was that they were infected with uh, Dutch elm disease. Although protesters at the time said, no, only 4% of these trees are infected. Why are you chopping them all down? So, of course, that gave rise to a bit of suspicion. So the author of Beneath the City Streets says that this is quite a plausible argument. The trees were all chopped down, which left a clear strip 25 yards wide on each side of the broad walk. 
Is that to make room for an aeroplane? To make it easier for a plane to land? Rupert Allison, a former Tory politician and expert on intelligence issues, he says, quote, There was also speculation in the mid-1950s that the Broadwalk in Kensington Gardens would be used to land an aircraft to evacuate the royal family in a nuclear crisis because they cut all the trees down and then replanted them 25 yards further out. Is that to widen it for an aeroplane? Or is it because those nasty trees were diseased? It's a nice little theory. Of course, it doesn't apply these days. Surely, if the Queen was to be taken away by air from central London, they would simply drop a helicopter into Buckingham Palace. But in the early 50s, uh, when this happened, when this theory popped up, of course, helicopters weren't in such common use. So in the 50s, the favoured solution of getting the Queen out by air would still be aeroplane. And the theories about that favour the Broadwalk in Kensington Gardens. There are further rumours, and these are quite sensible, that the Queen would be evacuated to a country house, uh, not one of her royal residences, as that's a bit too obvious in case of a Soviet invasion, but uh, to another country house which is sufficiently isolated and perhaps sheltered geographically by hills and mountains, which might help keep a bit of fallout at bay. Uh, as I say, these theories are quite plausible, quite sensible, as they were in action during the Second World War, where there was a plan known as the Black Move, which intended to move central government, uh, including the Cabinet and Churchill, out of London and spread it across various manor houses in the West Country if the Nazis had invaded. So again, perfectly sensible plan in wartime, But in nuclear war, where everything changes, it doesn't help you much with the threat of fallout or in avoiding the march of panicked, starving, crazed refugees and looters. And of course, anyone who's read The Road by Cormac McCarthy will think it's probably best to steer clear of those big, grand old country houses. We all know what happens there. If not, read that novel. It is brilliant. What about bunkers? If you listen to this podcast, you'll know that politicians in Britain had plenty of bunkers for themselves, so surely the Queen would have had one. Why should the Prime Minister be kitted out with a bunker, but not the Head of State? Well, to be blunt, the Prime Minister and politicians will be uh, working in those bunkers. That's what a bunker is. Don't listen to what Hollywood tells you. A bunker is really just office space. It just happens to be underground and quite sinister, but it is just office space. That's why when you visit bunkers which have now been tarted up as tourist attractions, you'll often see stupid mannequins in some of the rooms. That's because otherwise there'd be nothing in the rooms but filing cabinets, desks and telephones. So politicians, or at least so they say, needed nuclear bunkers so they could get to work and keep the country surviving. The Queen's role, on the other hand, after nuclear war would have been different. Uh, Apart from appointing a new Prime Minister if the current lot got nuked, her role would be, as I see it, mainly symbolic, at least in the initial stages after a nuclear war. Her main purpose would surely be to restore morale and to show the enemy that the British state still exists. That's the main thing 
British civil defence and British nuclear war planning was obsessed with. Once the hydrogen bomb came along, the authorities realised there was not much chance of saving loads and loads of people. Let's turn our attention instead to what they called continuity of government. All their efforts, or at least 99% of their efforts, went into the British state must survive, the workings of the British government must still keep ticking along. And that's where the Queen would appear. She would be used not just to prop up the morale of the survivors, but to show the enemy overseas that the British state still exists. There is continuity of government. We are still here. So her voice on the radio would be more powerful than any hydrogen bomb. Well, maybe not hydrogen bomb. Maybe a small little atomic bomb, perhaps. But I'm, I'm just joking. Really, her voice on the radio would be immensely powerful. She'd certainly carry more post-nuclear clout than Theresa May or any of that ilk. So really, you need the Queen alive. Politicians down in those bunkers can always be replaced with other guys in other suits, but the Queen is an individual and instantly recognisable. You need her alive. So why would you shove her in a bunker with all the other disposable politicians? Well, there is some evidence which suggests that preparations were made to accommodate the Queen or at least some of the royal family, at the massive government bunker in Wiltshire, which was codenamed Burlington. The idea of dispersing central government and sending the politicians to Burlington fizzled out in the 60s, which is just as well, because we later found out that the Soviets knew its location, and it would surely have been one of the first places to be bombed in a nuclear war. However, Burlington stayed in the nuclear planning as a decoy, So even once it stopped being used as the proposed centre of government, it still popped up in all those papers. More on that in a future podcast, I'm sure. But while Burlington was still in use, there are clues that the Queen or other members of the royal family might be taken there. My source here is the book of photos and accompanying text called Burlington by the bunker expert Nick Catford. He says that as well as little vague phrases and scraps of info found over the years about the royal family, Catford highlights a handwritten document found in the 80s which refers to accommodation in the Burlington bunker for VVIPs. And yep, you heard that right, VVIPs, very, very important persons. This document lists, this document refers to eight VVIPs And Catford points out that this figure matches the royal family at the time. That would have been the Queen, Prince Philip, Queen Mother, Princess Margaret and the Queen's four children. These eight VVIPs would have been accompanied by personal secretaries and the bunker has a suite of VIP accommodation which fits this party very nicely. Now, VIP accommodation in Burlington still isn't very fancy. However, the suite of rooms in question is certainly better than what the ordinary staff would have had. Their sleeping accommodation, as with most nuclear bunkers, would be dormitories filled with bunks. And even then, those bunks usually operated on a hotbed method, which is you jump out of bed to start your shift and someone else immediately takes your place. It's not your own bed, you're sharing it with your colleagues. But the VIPs, or the VVIPs, had their own beds and even their own baths. These rooms also had a system of bells so they could summon staff. Let me read you an extract from Nick Catford's book about why this VIP suite was very, 
Very important. Quoting here from page 186. The VIP accommodation has three unique features that differentiate it from the rest of the CGWHQ, Central Government War Headquarters, let's just call it Burlington for ease of um, pronunciation. Nick goes on, First, all the room partitions are solid from floor to ceiling, whereas elsewhere they are only seven feet high. The upper sections being completed as simple steel mesh panels for reasons of economy and to facilitate ventilation. Secondly, rooms two and four contain the only baths in the complex, other than the lone example in the hospital. Finally, room number one is heavily reinforced with rolled steel joists and concrete beams providing very substantial overhead protection. So whoever was in that room was having a bit of nuclear luxury and a bit of additional protection. One of the captions to a photograph of room number one, which might have been the Queen's bedroom, says, Room number one, this is the most heavily protected room in the whole of Burlington. Notice the additional overhead protection provided by the pre-stressed reinforced concrete beams supported by rolled steel joists. Staff at Corsham, Corsham being another name for Burlington, Staff at Corsham assumed that had the royal family been accommodated there, then this would have served as the sovereign's bedroom. So there you have it. There are some preparation in that massive bunker for a VVIP. Perhaps it was for the Prime Minister. Perhaps it was just for whichever cabinet minister managed to scramble their way into the PM's shoes after they'd disappeared in a puff of nuclear smoke. But have you ever heard a cabinet minister or a politician referred to as a VVIP? It does seem as though that kind of lingo would be reserved for the royals. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, the truth is we simply don't know. These are only theories. But I just don't, I can't accept the idea or I don't favour the idea of the Queen being tucked away in that bunker with a load of politicians, a load of admin staff. I can't help but thinking she would have been spirited away somewhere else, somewhere distant. And that's the theory we're going to look at next. Sir Peter Hennessy, an expert in government during the Cold War, said of the Queen's nuclear escape plan, she was going to lurk in the sea lochs of the northwest coast of Scotland, moving at night from one to the other, because the mountains would stop the radar getting to her. Now that sounds a bit more like it. If the Queen's at sea, then she's mobile. A ship can move to escape any drifting clouds fallout, and you only need to go ashore when you've found a safe port. But what would she be sailing on? Is there such a thing as a floating nuclear bunker, or a ship especially equipped to repel radiation? The answer is yes. I'm going to quote here from an article I wrote for the Sunday Herald on this very topic, but The person who did the heavy lifting and who dragged all the previously top-secret info from the government via freedom of information requests and then shared it with me was Mike Kenner. So let me give a quick overview of this plan. As we discussed previously, the government's plan for nuclear war was to disperse central government, sending a core of them plus admin and support staff to the big gigantic bunker in Wiltshire called Burlington. But in the late 60s, that plan fizzled out and the opposite popped up. 
instead of focusing central government in the bunker at Wiltshire, they would disperse them across the country. So the exact opposite approach popped up. We're no longer hunkering down in Wiltshire in one spot. We're going to be scattered in tiny little groups in secret locations across the country. This plan was called Python. The Python plan saw government and support staff split into little groups who would be sent across the country, all across the country, Scotland, Cornwall, Wales. And the idea was you will scatter so that even if most of you are wiped out in the nuclear war, hopefully at least some of you will remain. After the nuclear war, when things have died down a bit, the surviving groups can meet up again, probably down at Burlington, if it's still there, and we can have a nice jolly reunion and we can roll up our sleeves and get to work. The task of rebuilding and resupplying Britain. So where were these secret Python locations? Well, Mike has been able to confirm for us they were Culdrose in Cornwall, HMS Osprey in Portland, the University of Aberystwyth, Taymouth Castle in Perthshire, and either the Royal Yacht Britannia or HMS Engadine, who would embark her Python group at either Loch Torridon or Oban. So let me just underline that there for those who are interested in what the Queen would have done. The Royal Yacht Britannia was probably going to be used by one of the government Python groups. Therefore, it wouldn't be available for the Queen. Lots of people tend to, who like the seaborne Queen idea, like to think of her escaping nuclear war on the Royal Yacht Britannia, but according to Python, that was earmarked for use. Now, beside the Python teams, who would have consisted of politicians, there were support groups. And there were six of these uh, support groups. They were either working for the United Kingdom Supply Agency or the National Air Transport Agency. And again, they would be scattered all across the country, just like their Python uh, partners. Now, those groups are going to be out at sea. There's no point putting them to sea in an ordinary ship when they're going to be facing nuclear war conditions. So in 1964, the Secretary of State for Scotland ordered three nuclear ships to be built. These were called the Columba, the Hebrides and the Klansman. Now, of course, they were never used as nuclear ships. Nuclear war didn't break out. So there's no point wasting them, tucking them away somewhere. So they were chartered to the Caledonia McBrain Ferry Service, where they operated as ordinary car ferries, taking people to and fro between Oban and all the Scottish islands. Perfectly ordinary looking car ferries, unless you're a real nautical geek and were able to spot some unusual features on them. These features making them making it possible for them to act as floating nuclear bunkers. So I'll quote from my Sunday Herald article here on what made these ships special nuclear ships. Each ship had massive guillotine-style doors which could seal the car deck. The external doors and vents were airtight. There were decontamination rooms with showers. The air pressure could be altered to repel external contamination and the exterior of the ship had sprinklers so that fallout could be washed away. In the event of a nuclear war, one of these ships would have hosted a supply agency group whose duty was to obtain and distribute supplies to a devastated Britain. They would have surveyed the country's foodstocks and surviving agriculture, assessed the food requirements of the regions, given that the country's population would have been in flux, 
with previously empty regions now likely to be filled with refugees from urban areas. And they would also have arranged the procurement of supplies from overseas. The importance of these supply groups, such as Whiskey Section, which would have been destined for one of the Kalmak nuclear ships, cannot be overestimated. And a Whitehall memorandum noted that without a surviving supply agency group, Britain would, quote, cease to exist as a country. So you've got three nuclear ships. One of them would have been allocated to the Whiskey Section for the supply agency groups. And he would have been out at sea during the nuclear war, hopefully managing to dodge the blast and the fallout. And when things became a bit more manageable and accessible, he would get to work in helping resupply a devastated Britain. But as we know, the nuclear ships were never needed. So they just carried on working as ordinary car ferries. But of course, why were three ships built? Well, the theory goes, and it's a plausible one, that... One was built for the supply agency, the whiskey section. One was built as a backup. And the third could have been for the Queen. Because, of course, the rumour has always gone that the Queen would be evacuated on, on the Royal Yacht Britannia. But as this would have been required by the government, as we've already seen, it's a reasonable assumption she would have been given use of one of the three nuclear ships. So that's one for the Queen... One for the whiskey section supply agency, and one as a little backup. And just to add another bit of info here, the Queen has actually travelled on one of those ships. The one which served during the Cold War as the Columba is the only one which is still functioning. The other two have long been sold and um, broken up for parts. But the Columba changed its name to the Hebridean Princess. It was sold in 1988. And it now sails as a luxury cruise ship, the Hebridean Princess. And the Queen has taken several holidays on that very ship. And its current owners proudly display the royal warrant. Now that might be meaningless. It's just quite interesting to know that we're trying to link this ship up with the Queen with her nuclear war escape plan. And we find out that she's already very familiar with it. And has frequently holidayed on the Hebridean Princess, formerly the Klansman formerly the floating nuclear bunker. So that's the main group of theories about what the Queen would do during nuclear war. No certainty there, only theories. But we know what she would do prior to nuclear war. She'd read a prepared speech to her terrified country. Think of it as a sick and dreadful version of the Christmas Queen speech. Think of her delivering it, not in front of a fire and a twinkling Christmas tree, but in front of windows that have been boarded up, with lots of fuss being made off camera as her butler tries to force the corgis into radiation suits. (coughs) But uh, being serious, the speech was written in 1983, which was, of course, a particularly dangerous point of the Cold War. I'll read the speech out to you here, but not in the Queen's received pronunciation. It will be done in my Glasgow accent. (laughs) 
When I spoke to you less than three months ago, we were all enjoying the warmth and fellowship of a family Christmas. Our thoughts were concentrated on the strong links that bind each generation to the ones that came before and those that will follow. The horrors of war could not have seemed more remote as my family and I shared our Christmas joy with the growing family of the Commonwealth. Now this madness of war is once more spreading through the world and our brave country must again prepare itself to survive against great odds. I have never forgotten the sorrow and pride I felt as my sister and I huddled around the nursery wireless set, listening to my father's inspiring words on that fateful day in 1939. Not for a single moment did I imagine that this solemn and awful duty would one day fall to me. We all know that the dangers facing us today are greater by far than at any time in our long history. The enemy is not the soldier with his rifle, nor even the airman prowling the skies above our cities and towns, but the deadly power of abused technology. But whatever terrors lie in wait for us all, the qualities that have helped to keep our freedom intact twice already during this sad century will once more be our strength. My husband and I share with families up and down the land the fear we feel for our sons and daughters, husbands and brothers who have left our side to serve their country. My beloved son Andrew is at this moment in action with his unit and we pray continually for his safety and for the safety of all servicemen and women at home and overseas. It is this close bond of family life that must be our greatest defence against the unknown. If families remain united and resolute, giving shelter to those living alone and unprotected, our country's will to survive cannot be broken. My message to you therefore is simple. Help those who cannot help themselves, give comfort to the lonely and the homeless, and let your family become the focus of hope and life to those who need it. As we strive together to fight off the new evil, let us pray for our country and men of goodwill wherever they may be. God bless you all. I know it's fashionable to be cynical, but that really does wring my heart. We're at the end of the episode, so let me apologise for there not being a podcast last week or the week before. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that we were moving house and there was a lot of chaos. I couldn't even access my study for a while, but everything is settled now. I'm recording this in the new study, which no longer looks onto a stretch of Scotland's busiest train line. So I didn't have to pause every few seconds to let trains screech by. That was quite good. Uh, And let me thank my patrons who donate some money to the podcast each month. If you want to support me, you can do so via my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, or you can make a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on my Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain, or via my website, which is juliemcdowell.com. So let me thank my kind patrons. Thank you to Adam Spink, Alan Christie, Andrew Key, Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damian Ryan, Dave Marks, Dave Owen, Douglas Greenshields, Gordy McNair, Helen McHale, Ian McCulloch, Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins, Kevin Buter, Lainey Peterson, Linda Wilnuff, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace, and Tim Hegarty. 
quite a lot of new names there. I'm very happy to see lots of other people have joined. Again, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I went viral, I think it was two weeks ago, because of something completely unconnected to nuclear war. I won't bore you all with it here, I know you're here for the nuclear stuff, but I went viral for something silly, and that brought a lot of new followers to my Twitter account, and I think some of them have decided to stick with me for all the, the nuclear horror. So thank you to all the new patrons, and welcome. Thank you for your support, everyone. I'll be back next Sunday, and until then, thank you for listening.